Good morning to all of you. If you would, look with me, Colossians chapter 2. We were continuing in our study through Colossians. We'll pick up our reading again in verse 8 as we did last week. If you would, please stand with us as we read together. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the provision of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray for those, Lord, that have gathered with us this day. We pray that the Spirit of God, your Spirit, may use your word in hearts and lives to reveal Christ unto us. Illuminate our hearts and minds to the revealed Jesus throughout the pages of your word. Throughout this letter of Paul to the church at Colossae, Lord, I pray we might have understanding and discernment of your spirit and wisdom in declaring this truth. And Father, as well, we pray for all of those that are away from us this morning, those who are ill, recovering from surgeries, those, Lord, who are traveling, and so on. Lord, we just pray that you might bring them back safely to us. Father, we do pray for each and every one. We thank you for answered prayer concerning those of our church body. And we pray you'll continue to work your grace in and through our lives. May we, may we exalt Christ today in all that is said and done. And may we edify one another as fellow believers in the faith. Lord, may we submit ourselves to you that you might minister in and through us to your glory and to your honor. Use your word today in our hearts and our lives. Teach us, grow us, mature us in the faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Over the past few weeks, uh, we've now been six months plus in the book of Colossians, as most of you are aware. And over the past few weeks, we have considered Paul's warning of the present danger of deceivers who were attempting to distract the Colossian believers from the lordship or preeminence of Jesus Christ. Every, every epistle has a statement within it. Every epistle has a theme and the reason as to why it's included within the canon of Scripture. Paul to the church at Colossae, is one which emphasizes the preeminence of Jesus Christ. If you remember, uh, Ephesians, of course, is all about our position in Jesus Christ. Galatians is about the all-sufficiency being, of course, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ um, as well. And then you find here in Colossians, Paul is emphasizing the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And what had taken place, if you're not aware, I'll give you a quick background uh, just to help to bring us up to speed where we are. Uh, Gnosticism was creeping into the churches in the first century, and they were being inundated, beginning to be inundated by all this false doctrine of heresy. And concerning the preeminence of Christ, why this is so important within this book, is because one of the teachings of Gnosticism was, again, that all matter itself is evil. Therefore, they denied the deity of Christ, or denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh. And the reason why is they were Gnosticism would teach that all flesh all matter itself is wicked inherently, whereas Jesus came in the flesh, manifested in the flesh, but he was not of Adam's seed. So therefore, he is sinless, even as we read in this morning from the verses in Corinthians and also saying he was sinless, and because of this, of course, he, he came manifested as the Son of God sin, in a sinless flesh, though he dwelt among us in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. And so Gnosticism said, well, that's impossible because Flesh is inherently wicked, therefore Jesus could not truly be the Son of God, or he didn't show up in the flesh at all. Gnosticism also uh, would teach that men would come to a knowledge. Gnosticism is derived from 
the Greek word gnosis, and gnosis is that of knowledge. And so he is saying that, that it was through some mystical knowledge that people would come into a relationship and fellowship with God. And we know that to be untrue, obviously. We know it's by the revelation of his son, manifestation of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, Jesus said clearly, as you're aware, at John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so Gnosticism would totally refute the preeminence of Jesus altogether because, first of all, he couldn't really be the Son of God in the flesh because he would be sinful if that were true, according to their teaching. And second, because you don't need a manifestation of God in the flesh to know God. You can come to know him and some knowledge that is, is just secluded for some. But Christ, God manifested and demonstrated his love to the world, Jew and Gentile alike, in the person of Christ. And so Paul here is emphasizing throughout this epistle, in the face of Gnosticism, he is emphasizing the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we could just simply say the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the truth that he is Lord. And so he is emphasizing this truth throughout this epistle. Last week we focused our attention on this warning by Paul's introduction to such warning when he stated, beware. Paul's statement, beware, is literally a call for the church to see or to see to it. When he says beware, he, it's not just saying take caution, but he's saying see and see to this. And so Paul is exhorting the church, as we saw last week by way of review briefly, he is exhorting the church, first of all, beware or see to it, that you not be distracted from Christ. He says in verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain or empty deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now last week I showed you clearly three examples in Paul's epistles in which he quoted or alluded to philosophers, Greek philosophers, 300 centuries prior to his coming into existence in, in the world, his life. And yet Paul quoted and referenced these pagan philosophers, Greek philosophers, because of, and they spoke some truths, and he would emphasize those truths, or use statements they made to emphasize the truth, and that's the point. So when Paul says uh, to beware, lest he may spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, he's not saying that we should not grow in our knowledge and understanding, even, even philosophically speaking, but rather any moment that anything distracts us from the preeminence of Christ, we are not taking and learning and gleaning, we might better see the truth of who Jesus is and understand him to be who he is, then that in itself is sin. He says, do not follow after tradition, do not follow after philosophy, after vain deceit, after vain and empty deceit. He said that has no, no, no substance to it. He said, anything that's going to distract you from Christ, we return from that. Now, I said last week, I want to emphasize this again, because I believe this is of the utmost importance. We have forsaken apologetics today within the church by large, and one of the problems with that is that people have tried to make philosophy and theology as though they are enemies one to the other. In other words, let's just totally reject all intellectualism and let's just cling to emotionalism, which is a fallacy. And the reality is this, that God did not make us, I've said this to you before, God did not make us emotional beings with intellect. He made us intelligent beings, intellectual beings with emotion. And so emotions are part of our makeup, yes. But today what's happened is men have rejected all intellectualism altogether within the church now, when I say intellectualism, let me define that for you again. Literally, the definition is simply this. It is the exercise of the intellect despite or at the expense of emotions. 
So it's saying to be rooted and grounded and to think through things, not be emotionally driven by or, or through emotion. And so what's happened today in the church, and I, I mentioned this again, I, wanna, I don't want to you know, belabor this point, but I believe it's important in, in regard to where we are in our study to remind you of this truth. A statement was made last week to me concerning, a statement was made to me last week concerning the uh, introduction of young people into colleges and universities, secular colleges, secular universities and such. And in often what you'll find is within a year or two of young people who grew up in church, who were taught at home, if you will, at least to some degree, and they'll go into a secular university or secular college, and when they do so, they go in there and they are, within a year or two, totally transitioned from everything for 18 years that they have been exposed to, to a belief that is taught from someone they don't even know or have never met prior to this in all probability. And one of the questions is, why is that so? Why is it that young people are so quickly turned from what they've been exposed to? I want to say exposed rather than taught. What they've been exposed to concerning the faith or the gospel? Well, first of all, we cannot deny this truth, and we must understand, first and foremost, that if you do not have the Holy Spirit of God within you, you are not born again, therefore you are not in the faith, and you will easily swayed and, and easily convinced, other, deceived otherwise. So without the presence of the Spirit of God, all your thinking and all your rationality will never bring you to faith. But neither will any of your emotion ever bring you to faith. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to faith in Christ. So that is a reality that's absolute. But even people that have been uh, brought up, even in the church, if you will, how is it that 18 years of exposure to at least some some proclamation of the gospel or of truth, how is it that they can so easily and quickly be swayed or deceived within a year or two, within a year or two of, of time? And I believe the reason or the answer is simply in this and is given in this, in this reality, that in those universities and colleges, like I said last week, what's happening is the professors have one goal and one intent, and that is to engage the mind of the student. While the church is no longer doing that, all they are attempting to do is engage emotions of individuals, and by engaging the emotions of individuals and manipulating them, that can never stand in defense when the mind is stimulated to think rationally and critically. And so the church has failed drastically to teach and proclaim the truth of the gospel and to root and ground people in the truth, rather giving over to this emotional manipulation in an attempt to get people to be moved and stirred up and rallied around. Listen, you need the gospel, you need Christ. You don't need emotionalism, you don't need sensationalism, you don't need excitement. If you can't be excited about the revealed Christ, then I would question your very claim and profession of faith. The point is, Christ is the one who is our life, and we should be rooted in ground. So this warning is, do not be distracted from All of us can be distracted from Christ. There's no doubt about that. So take heed that you not be distracted. Beware, second, he said, or see to it, that you not overlook the importance of Christ. Verse 9, Paul goes on to explain. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The preeminence of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, has been declared by the Father. And Paul warns the Colossian believers to never allow anyone to deceptively persuade them to look anywhere other than Christ. There is nothing... And there is no one who transcends the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ that the fullness of God has been manifested in the flesh. Colossians 1, 15 and 18, Paul wrote, 
who Jesus, just, just the chapter prior, who Jesus is the image. Christ, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now that makes a whole lot more sense when you understand the teaching of Gnosticism. Because here he's saying, you don't know God through some mystical knowledge. You know him through the manifestation of his son who is the very image, the very substance of the Godhead bodily. He is the manifestation of God in the flesh, being the very Son of God. <clears throat> Verse 18, Paul went on to say, And he the head, Christ, being the head of the body, the church, who is the invisible, I'm sorry, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence or the lordship. And, and we find here that in this statement, Paul is making that God has declared him to be preeminent, not that he says, oh, you know, you should make Jesus preeminent in your life. You should make him Lord of your life. You should make him Savior of your life. No, here, I've said this many times before, just to reiterate, that you no more make Jesus Savior or Lord than you make him Creator. He is who God declares him to be. It's not a question of what, what you think about it. The question is whether or not we are submitted to who he is. And so he is Lord. He is preeminent. <clears throat> he is Creator. He is Savior. And men will either humbly, by the working of God's Spirit, bow to that truth and submit themselves to the truth of who he is, or they continue to reject that truth. But whether a man receives or rejects the truth of who Christ is does not in any way, shape, form determine or dictate who he is. He is who he is. And we are to submit ourselves before him as he is, for who he is. And Paul says, do not overlook the importance how is it that Jesus is so important? Well, there's one mediator, mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. God, again, John 14, Jesus said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Uh, as we read, saying this morning, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The importance of Christ is unparalleled. And yet how many people are so easily, or how many times have we been so easily distracted from his lordship and his preeminence, or overlook the importance of his lordship and preeminence. Previously stated in Colossians chapter 1, 119, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. There is nothing worthy of distracting us from the preeminence of the Lord Jesus, for there is no one or anything to compare to our Lord. And I would say someone who is repetitively, continually distracted from how important and, uh, he is in his preeminence and lordship is probably someone who's never understood the truth and never come to the reality of Philippians in which Paul again teaches of the excellency, which means superiority, of the Lord Jesus Christ, for which Paul says, I count all things but loss, that I might know him, that I might win him. And when he says win, he doesn't mean that I get something for what I do. He's saying Christ is the prize. And he says, I count all things but loss, that I might know him. All things that I once held to God, again, is my resume of righteousness. A, a tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, born of the house of Israel. says, look, I, I, I am, a, I am a, touching the law, none to compare. There was none. If anyone could boast in the flesh, Paul says, it's me. But he says, but no one can boast in the flesh. He says, because when you see the superiority of Christ, you can't help but understand everything you once thought superior is now really inferior to he who is superior. And so Paul is making those statements, and this continues that thought with his preeminence and lordship. He said, third, uh, we saw last week, beware or see to it that you not neglect your privilege in Christ. He says in verses uh, 10 through 12, 
And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Paul declared that the Colossian believers had been made full by the fullness of Christ. We're going to continue to look at that this morning. And it is in Christ, the head of all rulers, the head of all authorities, the head of all power, that we have now been given this identity. As we have been buried with him in his death, so also we are risen with him in new life through his resurrection. So this morning I believe we need to continue our study of this passage by considering further the gravity of the concluding statement from study and Paul's explanation of this statement in the following verse. Paul's statement is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. Verse 10, and ye are complete in him. There are several truths which demand our attention in these six words, not to mention the truths within the verse, remainder of this verse and those which follow. And we begin our study this morning with the first word, verse 10, and, very simple, and. The first word, and, is what is known as a logical connective conjunction. And what that means is it joins this verse to the previous verse, which sets the stage for this tremendous truth Paul is making in verse 10 when he says, uh, verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and... So now he's connecting this thought with that previous statement in verse 9. And such a conjunction, a logical connective conjunction, can be used to continue be logically considered as a natural result of the previous statement. And so such is the case in the use of the conjunction and in this verse as Paul used it. Paul is saying, in other words, Christ is the fullness of God and it stands to reason that we would therefore be made complete or fulfilled in the one who is the fullness of God. So that's what Paul is saying here. He says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and... Continuing that truth, now saying, and it is by this truth and in this truth that we are now made to be complete or fulfilled in him. And then he goes on to say, ye are complete and ye are complete in him. Ye, believers in Christ, all those who are resting and trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus as both Savior and Lord are complete in him. The verb are is in the present tense, and that indicates the present state of the subject, the present state of being. And the word complete is what is referred to as a verbal adjective in the perfect tense, which describes a completed verbal action, completed in the past, that produced as a state of being which exists in the present. It also implies or means that one is to be or to become. And so he says, and ye are complete in him. What, that, what all this means is that those who were believers in Jesus Christ were made complete at the moment of salvation and remain complete and fulfilled in him, while at the same time it is a continued process that is realized by the one upon whom such a work has been accomplished. In other words, let me say it to you like this. I'll really, really kind of bring it down some and say it in, in maybe a little more simpler, simpler terms, if you will. Salvation 
Although the new birth in salvation is one time, I am born again, I am now redeemed, it's a completed work. In other words, what if I am born again and then go out and commit sin and die? What, what happens to me? I'm still born again, I'm still redeemed. It's not an excuse for sin. What, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, but guess what? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So even though we do not continue in sin for the purpose of grace abounding, grace abounds all the same. Thank God we find in this reality that I am born again one time, but I am continually being saved and ultimately am saved. And once God's begun this work, he is faithful to complete that work. As a matter of fact, we often, you've heard people say statements like this, but if you read a little more closely, you'll find it to not be really what the scriptures teach. The scripture does not say that we are the bride of Christ. It says we are espoused to be his bride. At this moment in time, it's as though we are engaged to him, which is going to end up in this marriage, obviously, in eternity when we are made uh, to be his bride. But at this point, we are espoused to him. I am saved. I am born again. And nothing can ever change that. But listen, if what you claim is salvation only affected one moment in your life, that is not biblical salvation at all. So I am saved, but guess what? Being saved and ultimately will be saved. That's, that's the reality of it. And this is all God's work. And, and what we often refer to, and this is another component of this redemptive work of God, is that of sanctification. Sanctification and salvation are not the same thing. They're not. Salvation is God's redeemed me of Christ. Sanctification is God has now consecrated me to himself. It's not just he separates me from sin. Many people have that idea that sanctification is only being separated from sin. That is not the case at all. Sanctification is separation from sin, but more importantly, it is a separation unto God. He has separated us unto himself. And so that is an ongoing process that's taking place in our lives. Again, people talk about, um, in, in sanctification as well, they'll refer to uh, being filled with the Spirit, quote-unquote. Yes, we are filled with the Spirit, but Romans 8, 9 says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if a man does not possess the Spirit of God, he's not born again at all. We do not get more of the Spirit. That is a, that is a, a false misrepresentation, that is a misrepresentation, and that is, not a tr- that is not a truth, it is false. We do not get more of the Spirit, but the Spirit sure does get more of us. In other words, I've said this before to explain this truth. When you walked into this building, all of you came in this building, but all of you is not in all of the building. And the Holy Spirit, we got all of him in redemption and salvation. He's the earnest of the inheritance. What sanctification is in time, he is continually staking more ground in our lives saying, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Why? Because we are his. And so he's claiming that progressively in time. So sanctification one day will be absolutely made complete. One day we will absolutely be sanctified completely. We will be presented. He will present us unto himself a holy bride without blemish, without spot, a church which is blameless and purified. But until that moment, we are continually being sanctified, being consecrated unto God and separated from sin as well. So here we're finding that what Paul is saying, we are complete in him. It, it, and the, the verbiage that is used and, and the sense of, the, of the, the structure of the sentences that are used here and the statements that are made is that it is a completed work in the past that has produced a state of being which presently is still existing. And it's a work that is continually being realized by us. So Paul's statement is that all those who are believers in Jesus Christ 
were made complete and remain complete while at the same time is a process. The meaning of Paul's statement, and you're complete in him, is further explained in John's gospel and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I think this gives us some understanding of what Paul is saying. In John 1, 14 through 17, John writes, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus, of course. And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh before, after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And listen to verse 16. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I stated to you years ago, the only thing that can replace the grace of God in our lives is more grace. And as waves crash onto the shore and then return to the ocean, only to be replaced by more waves crashing crashing upon the shore, so so is the grace of God in our lives. God gives us grace, and you know what replaces that grace? More grace. And just more grace. It is in such manner that we have been made complete, fulfilled, and continue to be fulfilled in Christ. Paul then stated in his letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. We are being conformed to the image of God, the image of Christ, by God, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, Paul wrote. So we are being conformed continually by God's grace, provided in the fullness of Jesus from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. This is a continued process in the life of the child of God. Remember something, new life requires there be a new birth, but a new birth always results in new life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read that this morning. Paul goes on to say, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in the flesh, and we must never overlook this truth. Why do we emphasize Christ? Why do the Scriptures emphasize Him? Jesus, remember John 5, 39, He said, search the Scriptures. For in them, in the Scriptures, Old Testament, by the way, because they didn't have New Testament then. This was taught in the Old Testament, and Jesus is speaking to Jews. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they that testify of me. He didn't say they testify of God the Father. Now, is there testimony of God the Father in the Scriptures? Of course there is. He didn't say they testify of God the Holy Spirit. He said, search the Scriptures. You think your eternal life is in the Scriptures. He said, but what you don't understand is testifying of me, of Christ in the flesh. Why do we make much of Christ? Scripture makes much of Christ. And we must make much of Him. For remember something, though there is a God of all eternity who is Father of those who know Him in Christ, apart from Christ, we have no knowledge of Him and no relationship with Him. And don't forget, though there is a Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers in Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, we have no presence of His Spirit and no understanding and no discernment provided by His Spirit. It is through Christ that God the Father has reconciled us to Himself. Our relationship is now restored with Him through Christ And it is through Christ we receive the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us as individual believers in Christ. So how important is Christ? He's all important. And he's the head of all principality and power. It is because of who Jesus is that we are able to be fulfilled in him. Not to belabor the point, but since 
Paul's emphasis of this entire book is the preeminence of Jesus, I do believe it's fitting to once again refer to Paul's previous statements concerning the preeminence of Jesus when referring to his headship of all authority and power. Colossians 1, back a chapter, verses 14 through 20. In whom, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting, that image. God is invisible. No man can see the Father, but he, Christ, is the very image. He is the substance. If you go to John, 1 John chapter 1, you'll, begin that, you'll see that John begins, and John as well was dealing with Gnosticism at the same time, or it was later, but yet in that same, in that same era. And we find that John, again, being uh, the last of the apostles to still be alive, and yet we find that the, the church then was filled with second or third generation believers coming into it, if you will, and being born again, and those whom, whom they were evangelizing. And so there were many of that time that had never seen Jesus. They, didn't, they did not see him in the flesh. They did not witness the miracles. They did not hear his teaching in the flesh. And so John starts that epistle. In fact, turn there with me. It's very interesting. If you go to First John chapter 1, let's just read the first verses of this. John says, very similar to his gospel, if you remember, in the gospel he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Remember that? And, the, and he goes on talking talk about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the light of, of, and life of man. Look at chapter 1 of, of 1 John, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the Word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye may also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Here John is saying, I've seen, I've heard, I've beheld, I have touched and handled. It was John who laid his his head upon the bosom of Christ, if you will, the beloved disciple of our Lord. And John the beloved is saying, I have seen, I have heard, I have witnessed, I have beheld and gazed in wonder, and I have handled, physically touched, and had interaction with this word of life, with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, it is this Jesus we declare unto you. While, you, while some would say he couldn't have come in the flesh because the flesh is sinful, while others would say, well, he may have come, but he truly wasn't deity. He is saying, no, I have seen and heard and witnessed and handled and beheld and gazed and wondered upon this Jesus. He says, this is the one we declare unto you. And by the way, our fellowship, we want you to have fellowship with us, but guess how we have fellowship? With God the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. This is our fellowship. This is what provides us fellowship and unity. So he says, he's the very image of the invisible God. Substance manifested in the flesh. The firstborn of every creature, verse 16 of Colossians 1. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now again, he's not saying, so it's possible for him to have the preeminence. Don't misread this. He's saying he made him head of the church. He has exalted him, given him a name which is above every name as Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the He exalted him, given him, given him a name above all names. And remember, he was exalted. He came in the flesh. He rose victoriously in a glorified flesh. 
and now has been exalted in that glorified flesh above all others. That's what's being spoken of here. Jesus has always been the Son of God. He's always been with the Father. When he humbled himself, Philippians 2, again, the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ in Philippians 2, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And God now also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. should confess that Jesus Christ is not that he should be, Not that he can be, not you can make him. No, he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who he is. This is his preeminence. And so here he says that in all things he might have the preeminence. He's not saying that it's a possibility for him to have this. He's saying I did all this through him for this purpose to exalt him above all others and give him this name above all names. He has the preeminence. For, verse 19, then listen to the next statement. It just validates all of this he's saying. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Again, and we see this. This is the theme of the epistle. There's no way to avoid this, not that I want to. But there's no way to avoid this. The simplicity of the message is this. Jesus Christ is preeminent. Or, Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't make him that, and you don't reverse that which he is. He is this. Within the next five verses of this text, verses 11 through 15, which we're not going to look at today, all God's people said, Yeah, right. Verses 11 through 15, we're not going to look at these today. We find Paul's explanation of how we have been made complete in Christ in verses 11 through 15. And then within verses 16 through 23, which wrap up the chapter, we see Paul's exhortation to not allow anyone again to turn their attention away from how Christ has made them complete. In other words, there is no other reason to look to anything else when Christ is all in all. Why would we be distracted? How can we be so easily distracted? Again, I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the Galatian church when he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should be so quickly removed from him that hath called you unto the gospel unto another. Did you hear what he said? He didn't say how quickly you're removed from the gospel. He said how quickly you are removed from him that hath called you unto this gospel. And be, and be distracted by another, or by another version, a perversion of the gospel is what's really being stated. So here we see Christ is preeminent. You don't make him that. You, you, you don't make Jesus Lord. You do not make Jesus Savior. You do not make him creator. You do not make him preeminent. God has declared him to be this. God has made him this. The question is, are you submitted to this truth of who he is? That's the question. Are you submitted to the truth of who he is? Do not be distracted. Recognize his beauty, his importance and ye are complete in him. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. How could we not be fulfilled in he who is the very fullness of God? That is really the question. How could it be that we who truly, genuinely know Christ could be one moment, one iota of a moment, that we could be drawn away to think that there's something other than, something more than, which doesn't exist, something in of, or something to subsidize, 
the one in whom the very fullness of the Godhead bodily has been manifested. He is Lord. And it's because of who He is that you are complete, that you are fulfilled because of who Christ is. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, thank you again for the Word of God this morning we've been able to look into. We thank you for its truth.